and setting the tone that as a nation, this is something we need to be aware of and not just awakened to, but to start thinking about what we can do about it. And I think the the challenge that uh, President Biden was presenting there is what we all are thinking about in one way or the other in terms of, you know, what do we do with this awakening now? Because the choices are pretty clear. We could either try to run away and turn our heads away uh, again, knowing that it's there, or do we answer the call, as that song says, and really start to seriously confront these issues that he raises and and see how we can begin to um, work on them and and bring about change. The uh, exciting part of it for me is it's history revisited, but yet in a new way because I came of age and uh, grew up in segregation in the South and in Jacksonville, Florida, and certainly I know all about um, political extremism and the Jim Crow laws and all the efforts to block the civil rights movement and the efforts to uh, for integration and the fight for equality. There was certainly the white supremacy operating there uh, with the Klan and those resisting change and domestic terrorism in terms of the assaults on people who were fighting for uh, their rights. And all of that had to be confronted and ultimately defeated, certainly to to some degree. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a product of how change can occur and does occur, as well as the witness to how much um, also has to be done, as President Biden is saying. I was one of the first black freshmen at the University of Florida. So stepping into that experience of change and having to learn to live in a different world has been ingrained in me and such a part of my story that ultimately I see hope and what the president had to say, and I also see some possibilities, even as dark as everything we're dealing with seems to be right now. It's really interesting. I mean, there's so much here in what you said. I would like to go back to your experience with the the University of Florida. There were um, five of us um, black freshmen who went in that first year, and there may may have been a total of 35 people of color, and that included foreign students, transfer students, and whatever, out of uh, 18,000 students at the university. Mm -hmm. So there were five of us who came in that first year living on campus, and one person dropped out after the first uh, semester, and the other four of us uh, continued. But that experience had a profound effect on me and the work that we're going to be uh, talking about during our time together, because I was much like an immigrant having to learn how to deal with differences at a level that I'd never experienced before, and having to find some internal resources I could draw on in order to make that journey and stay in that community as the world changed into a wider and wider community, and Mm -hmm. also how to confront and deal with the gap in racial relations 
that has always been there and we're always trying to negotiate and we go through periods of trying to deny it exists, but it is there. And as long as we recognize that we're going to always have to keep working on building the relationship across races, then I think we can have hope there. If we say that it can't be done, then it can't. But I say that we have some tools in order to make this work if we're really willing to use them. Absolutely. And you talked about the inner uh, wisdom and strength that you had to find for yourself to kind of navigate your way through there. Do you attribute it to, to faith, religion, or was there something else that was propelling you through this episode of your life? That was such a challenge, really. Well, yeah, people often ask that, and I, I'm, I'm still interested in wondering about that, too, if there are some of us who come to this planet with the ability to move beyond our group and beyond our environment to see something more. And I think, for me, I had a vision of possibilities of a life that was could be much bigger than the environment I was a part of and some of the uh, attitudes I was a, a part of. And that having that vision of possibility helped me to move forward and perhaps to keep going despite the obstacles and the problems I uh, encountered. So, the you know, having a vision of possibilities was... Um, uh, it's definitely a resource, I should say, that, that um, people often don't identify right away. It's of value. It is of tremendous value, and, it's, and you're certainly you know, one of the more gifted people I've met that has uh, the ability to really make a difference in people's lives. How did that experience pave the way for your, for your life's work now, Race and Change? By going there and surviving um, those experiences, and I write um, about a lot of them in uh, my uh, memoir, Multicolored Memories of a Black Southern Girl, um, there were many assaults on the spirit that can end up harming you as much as some of the possible physical onslaughts that um uh, other people may have encountered. But in the process of being in the dormitory with these girls and having a curfew and having to interact with them on a regular basis, I got the opportunity to see the commonality of people regardless of background, in a way that I never would have done if I was just watching, uh, you know, seeing them on television or reading stories about them, to see the concerns they had and the insecurities and and um, the family lives they came from and to see, you know, the, the humanness of the other by, by learning from them and interacting with them. And so I had an encounter, which I'll just share quickly with you. I think it maybe brings it to uh, bear so you could really understand the shift that had to occur. One of those um, girls I became friendly with who was a soft, uh, came in as a freshman, um, and I was a sophomore. And 
I had uh, I was her big sister, writing letters to tell her about the university and helped to smooth her way when she came to the dorm. That was just part mm-hmm. of a program we did in the dorm. And when she uh, came, and uh, over that year we became friendly and friendly enough to go out and talk with each other. And one night she shared with me, and she said, "You know, I want to tell you something." She said, "When I got here that night, and I saw that you." were the one who had been writing the letters and were my um, big sister. She said, I was really, you know, upset about it. And I was, she said, you know, when I was saying, why me? This is terrible. And when you invited me to go out to eat that evening, I think we were going to get pizza or something, she said, I was, I didn't go because I was ashamed to be seen with you. Mm. And she said, I want to let you know now, though, that I'm not ashamed to be with mm-hmm. you. I wouldn't go with you anywhere. And as as small as it was, it was a moment of choice. Thought we were getting along fine and all, and having to make that choice of what does that mean? Do I withdraw and say, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with those people because of that kind of reaction, or do I roll forward and find a way to keep closing that gap? And that's what I mean about in in terms of my work. It let me know that. There was a racial gap that people don't often talk about. We experience it, but we don't talk about it. And how we negotiate that gap has a lot to do with how we move forward personally and as a society. And then it made me want to talk to more people and see what they were encountering and how they were encountering it and how they were dealing with relationships and experiences across races and cultures, and then sharing those stories. It's really extraordinary how we could be faced with what seems to be insurmountable challenges, and yet as we have the ability to move through it, and as you say, make the choice to move through it, overcome whatever obstacle there is, and being positive about the end result that can happen if we do so, it really just shifts everything opens up the door to humanity. And then one change acknowledged, and then another change, and then another. Mm. The break in the chain of this is how often we don't acknowledge those steps, and we don't remember them, so we have to, it has to keep being repeated, I guess, yeah. in, in so many ways, because this is serious work. This is yeah. really the most difficult work we do as human beings for our time on the planet, and yet we tend to want to brush over it and project Mm -hmm. it onto other people. Well, if only those people would change. I'm fine. I don't have any issues. And that becomes the myth, you know, even when interviewing people about their race relations experiences, it usually starts out that way. Where I grew up, in my culture, in my community, everything was perfect. It was just when Mm -hmm. those new people came. (laughs) That's right. They brought all the trouble. (laughs) They brought all the trouble. Always those other, right, that's always the other people but we see that operating on on a systemic level obviously with the racism we're dealing with in so many aspects of our society as things crack open and the brokenness is 
is revealed, you know, whether it's our the health disparities that COVID is showing, the economic disparities with our the, the crisis we're in now, the political divisiveness, and obviously the the murders of of innocent black people and the you know the the injustices that um mm-hmm. we've been facing that, that people see all the time but then historically we had that you know this is a culmination of things that have been happening for decades too yes this is not a new story we're going to be listening to several audio pieces of your work you interview which are really fantastic i just want to stop for a second and share a personal story of my own. I grew up in Coney Island, which is in Brooklyn, New York, for those of my listeners outside the United States. As a young girl, I come from a working class family and community. I witnessed Coney Island go from being the greatest entertainment beach resort area in the country to a dangerous drug-ridden slum, all because of the government's plan for what they called urban renewal, but it was really, in my opinion, urban decay. And when we talk about the same story keeps repeating itself over and over and over again, this was happening when I grew up. I was about seven or eight at the time. It was at the height of the civil rights movement. And the city of New York forced people and families living in Coney Island to sell their homes back to the city So they could be demolished and make room for low-income housing to be built. The whites fled the area, as did, you know, most of the thriving businesses. So we were one of the last remaining white families on what became blocks and just empty and abandoned homes, except for Seagate, which was a private community, and they were, that's where the rich people lived. Black families moved in as squatters to these abandoned homes um, because they weren't taken down just yet. And I became the white devil, if you will, and target for months and months until my parents, who didn't own the home, saved up enough money to put a down payment on a house in a totally different area that had a better uh, school system. So at the same time that all this was going on, the civil rights demonstrations were happening on the news every night. I would hear my father and other family elders, Martin Luther King, you know, there'd be a clip of him speaking and they would be calling him a troublemaker and and a lot worse than that. It was horrifying. And as an eight-year-old to see peaceful people just protesting to get so savagely beaten Uh, by white people and police officers who were supposed to be, you know, the good guys. It was very confusing, really troubling for me. But even as a little girl, I could understand their, their outrage at me, you know, in terms of black people being so angry because I experienced that little tiny piece of reverse racism for those few months in my life. I understood that they had to take their anger out on somebody, and I was there. But it made me empathetic because I had this tiny window of awareness into the black experience. So, you know, my feeling is, and the government is still doing this, and maybe under Biden it won't, and I pray to God it won't. 
literally sets up the divide between the races and then pours gasoline on the fire. There really was no renewal. And at the root of it was greedy politicians and developers. It's all about greed and money. I really feel that until white people in general, number one, admit that they have been programmed to be racist, and two, do an inventory of their beliefs in an honest way with a a commitment to change, we can never truly live up to being the United States of America. It just can't, it can't happen. And I think that that is such a a powerful um, story you just told because it resonates so much with mine uh, on the other end. My um, first husband and I had to work to finally get uh, a home in a nice neighborhood in this area, and we were the first black family to move into that community in that Mm -hmm. neighborhood, and we had our uh, first child and we spent a few years meeting the neighbors and the child, my, our ch- the children would play with my daughter and all. And then to sit there and literally out of the window watch the blockbusting go on with the realtors and the redlining so that they were only, as neighbors did, begin to sell. They only brought back families in to see those homes. And so by the time my two children and were you know through elementary school to see that whole neighborhood totally change, hmm. and it was a determined. It was a specified action. It was not people putting up the for sale signs as soon as we moved in, but it was a targeted uh, role. At one point, I even uh, put in a complaint. Um, uh, and the Justice Department came and studied it, and they still had trouble identifying, you know, in order to bring a case. But one realtor actually had drawn a line saying they were creating a new black neighborhood out of that community. So it's exactly, as you said, uh, that kind of systemic racism operating with economic in order to create division among people as a result because those neighbors were fine with us and with the next black family that moved in and even the next one but at some point you know they were pushed to say oh your neighborhood is changing you need to move and you need to move right (laughs) you know that's what i mean about there's layers and layers and layers of this especially uh white people and most People, I don't want to say all, but don't have the same kind of awareness. And it's even myself, I have to constantly stop and check myself because you don't know what you don't know. I've had the privilege, not a privilege, really. You really awakened me to this. We were talking about white privilege and you said how powerful words were, not on this broadcast, but before the broadcast. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I I really took that away, and and, um, every time that word slips out of my mouth, white privilege, I go back to thinking of you and and what you said. So why don't you speak to it so they can hear it from the horse's mouth? Well, it was a sidelight to the conversation, and understand that, you know, as a writer, I know the importance of uh, of the, the gaps in communication, if you will, and words are always going to be imperfect to to some degree in in identifying what we mean, and that's why words change, even like from 
color to Negro to um, uh, black to African American to a person of color. You know, all of that right. is just right. as society changes. So this term of white privilege, I know, came up with the idea of trying to identify that. Um, white people have a different experience in society than people of color. And for a long time there was just trying to cover it up and say, oh, no, we are all the same. And no, the experiences aren't. To call it privilege is what I question because if you say that, then, well, why wouldn't I want to have privilege? (laughs) You know, what's wrong with privilege? And it isn't that. We're saying it's a white benefit that mm-hmm. you may have and even that is it you know well okay i guess uh, hey i'd rather have a benefit than not have one but i say it's white responsibility yes it's even greater than that we those of us of color have a responsibility to you know work on our own issues and move forward and those who are white have a responsibility as well within this society to be aware and stay aware and investigate and interrogate your own behaviors and attitudes and those around the attitudes of those around you so i think if we carried that more of the white responsibility, regardless of what level you're at economically or socially or whatever, you know, it puts it in a different light. Absolutely. But first you have to admit there is a problem and there's, I think what the country is so divided about, there's a great many people in the white race that don't believe there's any problem at all. They just don't see it. And and I, I, quite, I, I would I would suggest more that it isn't even that there's a problem. It's who's goes back to who's responsible, and that mm-hmm. lack of taking ownership ownership and responsibility is what many people don't want to take, and that's what you hear. It's not my responsibility. Right. <clears throat> I didn't have any slaves. I'm not prejudiced. I'm yes. not you know not my responsibility. Yes. yes. The government one. We've come it's the government. It's, it's like you said earlier. Come out of period, even nationally, where we had a government saying it's not even government's responsibility. Nobody's right. responsible. Right. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm saying, this is, you know, we we get so excited in, in this topic, and it's so wonderful to have this level of conversation that this difficult situation is opening up for a lot of us, for people like you to begin to share your experience and your wisdom and what you've learned as I get a chance to share some of what I've learned in the process. So this is what the national conversation on race should be all about. I agree with you totally. I recognized that I was not part of my own tribe as a young girl. Like I didn't agree with society's views. I didn't agree with my family's views. So this little person without the power to really do anything about it, but yet I did have power to do something about it because I never let it persuade me. I didn't change to what my family's expectations were. I didn't change to be what society wanted me to think and feel about black people at that time. Just went my own way. So when you speak about personal responsibility, I think that is so important. And in a way, it's easy then, right? Because as individual people, you know, what are we going to do to change the government? What are we going to do to change this or that. It all seems too overwhelming and too big for one single person to take on. 
But if you're just responsible for your own view, it's easy. For your own view, for your own information gathering, for your own growth and recognition of, of, of that process and that journey you're on. Yeah, that um, that is a lot. That's doing a lot. I mean, fighting, challenging, confronting, all of the overt actions are very necessary, too. I'm not saying any one is better or more important. It's just if we were all operating at our own level doing the work, <laughs> imagine how powerful that would be. Well, let's talk about systemic racism. Think about growing up. I had never heard about African-American inventor. There was no history. Up until Martin Luther King, nothing was taught. You know, my point being, so much has to be changed. And even today, we're arguing over, the, you know, the beginning of slavery in this country. They want to rewrite the history. Some people do. Kind of redesign it so that it suits their needs instead of, being based in fact and truth. And the thing is, we all have to look at the truth. And that's what I loved about Joe Biden's speech is I thought it really took all the issues that this country is dealing with and just put it out there in front of everybody. He spoke it. He said, here's what it is. Here's what I'm going to do about it. And I think we have to continue to keep digging away or chipping away or peeling those layers Individually and well, collectively. Well, that is out of the box, as they say. And, you know, and once you've seen it, you really, you know, can't unsee a lot of the things we've seen and heard in these last few years and, and, and become aware of. The race and change work that I started doing a couple of decades ago when people were telling me, oh, we really have gotten past race now. It isn't much of an issue. <laughs> really? It has evolved over time to, oh, maybe we should be talking about it, to, oh, we need it now. <laughs> and it's the same work, which was, what could I do in my little corner of the world with my little bit of knowledge and, and, and desire to make an impact? And in some ways, it grew far beyond anything I had really pictured. I started out saying I'd like to talk to some people from different races and ethnicities and cultures who came of age around the civil rights movement era about their experiences, kind of based on what I've just shared with you and listeners of my experience and see how they dealt with this. What was their life like when when they grew up and when they came of age uh, with integration and since? And how did they change and, and how did society change as a result? So it began talking with 42 black, white, Hispanic, and Asians in uh, a community of South Florida that was pegged by Money Magazine as having the demographics of what the U.S. was going to look like by the year 2025. Then it Mm. expanded to a larger and larger uh, area of people of diverse backgrounds who had come into this um, um, of the country and were learning to reimagine themselves and their backgrounds. So I wanted to listeners to hear a couple of the three voices 
from this race and change work to kind of see how people were confronting and dealing with race from various perspectives. Uh, People always start out by saying, oh, you're doing black history. Well, it's much more than that. But even with the people who are black and African-American that I interviewed, in the process of the work, it was getting them to share the story, not only the difficulties in segregation, uh, but some of what they encountered with integration and how they process things over time to keep going and survive and, and even thrive. So this person, uh, Jerry Spain, that you're going to hear a little bit about, had mm-hmm. shared about being uh, one of the first black students to integrate a white high school and the trauma of that and the insults she encountered and the isolation and how that had stayed with her for a long time, even as she went out into the world and got involved professionally and was a teacher and all that. And she also shared, though, later on about this experience that ended up being transformative for her and a point of healing. So this is Jerry Spain. She's from Delray Beach, Florida. I went to a seminar because of, of, of the my church that I go to and the things that I'm involved with. We're multicultural as well. I went to a seminar on inner healing. And uh, integration happened to be an issue that came up for me as someone was talking to me and they a white male and a white female and ended up and a Chinese female ended up coming before me and apologizing for all of the hurt and the pain that had been caused. And it was good. It was good. It was caused healing. Caused healing to come. That is such a moving piece of audio. You know, it just makes me think how simple it is to say I'm sorry and imagine if we could have a a national day of accountability. What would that be like from people by just saying I'm so sorry? Absolutely. And and where, you know, where does that come from in someone who withholds that? Because by that simple act of giving, the apology, you're opening the door to healing on both sides. Mm-hmm. Just that simple phrase. And, and, and there are many white people who have discovered that, of just being, I'm, I'm so sorry that happened. You know, that it could open the door yeah. to other deeper conversations and a really a shift in relationships with, among people. 
Well, this is, you know, it's difficult subject matter. So these people are strangers to you. They're not people you know. How do you get them to trust you to reveal their inner emotions and feelings about race? Well, there definitely had to be a process because I was walking into communities and lives of people that um, I didn't know about either, and I had to present an openness of a space where they could share the experiences as they experienced it without expectations. So it wasn't, I'm going to come in and ask you, I'm asking you about race and your feelings about race relations. It was more, I want to talk about your life. Have you tell me what your life and what your experiences have been like and how things have changed for you over time. Now, admittedly, uh, when I began uh, interviewing white people, it was, um, you know, quite a, a challenge in the sense that uh, white people are not used to being asked about race relations experiences to at this level. But I met mm-hmm. some wonderful people. One of the first people I interviewed, uh, his name was um, Bob Gossett, and we became friends in the sense over the years of him being invited to other programs I was doing. Uh, but he was around my age, and he talked, was, ended up talking very candidly about the experience of being having black students come into his high school and how he dealt with it and on the basketball team and all. But he started out by saying he really appreciated being asked because the questions and being listened to because he had never been asked before to examine those feelings and, and and the process he had gone through. And this next clip, you're going to hear uh, Lynn Laurenti, who gave me an even better, crisper understanding of what really amounts to the fear a lot of white mm-hmm. people had about opening up and engaging in this issue of race. And that's what most white people felt. Mm -hmm. The problem is bigger than all of us. If I try to get involved, I may be hurt. My family may be hurt. A couple of years later, when the uh, Freedom Riders started going into the South to Mm -hmm. register voters, and there were scenes of terrible beatings and carnage and even some killings, I felt like such a coward. Mm -hmm. And I said to my mother, I I was at that time at about 19, I said, I, I should go join them because that's what I believe. And she knew that I wasn't going to do it by then because by then I was afraid too. Mm-hmm. So she said, don't mm-hmm. be crazy, don't be crazy. What good will it do for you to be killed? This problem is something that uh, people above us are going to have to fix. We can't fix it. Mm-hmm. Looking back on the sweep of history, I can certainly understand why they were so afraid. But I do think that little people made a difference Mm -hmm. because I don't Mm -hmm. think that the leaders would have ever taken the action that they did for the the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, and then just the the sweeping changes in our society unless that was fueled from the grassroots. Mm -hmm. It's still present today, this fear. If you were black, you couldn't go to a certain area because there would be issues if you walked into a neighborhood where you weren't welcome. And that's still happening today, which boggles my mind. I don't understand it. I just don't understand what going to take for people to wake up. I had hoped 
when I began the race and change work, and the reason I called it race and change was I was hoping to move the conversation further with my generation, thinking that we had come through such monumental change that if we really began to think about it and reflect upon it, we would have a message then that we could pass on to younger people about how you make change and how you kind of work on shifting and bending the arc of justice, as, as Dr. King you know, um, pushed us to think about doing. And interestingly, the work failed that area to a large degree because people really have a difficult time talking about change. It's something we want and we want to see and all, but we have a, we have a difficult time uh, pinpointing it and identifying it. And I think to a large degree that's been a part of the problem why we feel stalemated so much because when people say you want systemic change what do you want to happen you want equality for all what does equality for all look like what do you mean and how will you know it when it happens and we we haven't had been a you know the more we can work individually i think definitely we can do it at an individual level which i'll talk about in a minute but as a society, it's it's this amorphous kind of thing that we really aren't even clear about. What does equality look like? Oh, well, everybody's sharing and everybody's... Is that even logical to believe? <laughs> you know, Is that a realistic expectation, knowing what we are like as human beings? That, mm-hmm. you know, there there are aspects of us as humans that are always trying to jockey for a position and, and issues of superiority and, you know, I have means that you don't have and this group is better than that group because, you know, so we we can't just um, dismiss all of those aspects of our, our humanness. I'll, I'll give you just a, a quick example of what I mean. Oh, sure. Is I, I took this um, race and change work out of the U.S. over to um, uh, West Africa, to Ghana, and used the same questions, the same instrument there, and talked to people who had come, who said they, in in Ghana, they didn't have any, you know, uh, uh, racial differences. Obviously, you're dealing with people who are all of, of African uh, background, but they definitely had ethnic groups or, or different segments of the society that were stratified to some degree. When they came to the States, they saw race as black and white and color differences and economics and all that to make the distinction. But when I asked one of the people I interviewed who I thought was from a particular group and she said, no, she was from this other group, and I said, oh, I'm sorry. I said, well, you know, how do you know the difference? And she said, oh, we all we wear different earrings mm. and something that simple to say that even wow. when we claim to be homogeneous, mm. we always have these divisions, 
And if somehow we could come back to that first and acknowledge that these divisions exist in our humanness, and this is always something we're we're working to get past, you know, we, it would help us uh, to move forward. But more than anything else, when you say we should have equality for all, you know, what what does that mean, even to you? I think there is so much systemic racism and unfairness that has to start with deprogramming people. Maybe you could start a uh, chorus, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that can go nationwide well, and worldwide because I do think people have to go in like a car wash and just be, you know, <laughs> you know, and come out and they're not going to be cured. But uh, for those resisting, any kind of awareness, I do think that they're just like we have to have a license to drive a car. I think that we should be all have to go through a process where we have to take an inventory, an honest inventory, evaluate where the issues are. That's the only way to heal it. If we keep trying to cover it up or make like it's not there or whatever other excuse is you know, currently being thrown out there, nothing's going to change. And that's why nothing has changed. But we're at a point right now, politically, we are not going to survive unless we work together as a nation, United States. It's not just a black and white issue. It's all of us. Those of us in the, in the white race, we really have to do some hardcore work individually, but I also think that there should be programs and it should start at the school level, kindergarten kids, where you can't walk into a neighborhood because someone's going to shoot you down. This is 2021 and this is still happening. This, we got the Voting Rights Act. All these wonderful civil rights legislature was passed and yet people are still trying to go backwards instead of forward. So I I do believe that there has to be some kind of deprogramming. <laughs> Sorry. I, lo- I love that. I love your car wash Im- imagery. But, <laughs> and see, I see hopeful signs of that occurring. And I guess, you know, philosophically, that's what we're really talking about when it gets down mm-hmm. to what do you really believe about uh, working for change. And I'm a pragmatic optimist in in that sense i believe that there's no there's not going to be any sweeping thing that comes and makes everything all right i believe that change is cyclical and elliptical that we move mm-hmm. forward a bit and then it swings back and sometimes it swings further back than we would like and then there's a trajectory like hopefully we seem to be on now where we begin to move forward a bit that it's a constant it's it's a constant work in in keeping things aligned and and slipping, slipping, and then moving forward again. I think seeing the grassroots movements that have emerged uh, around over the last um, four to five years, seeing what's happened even within this last year of the awfulness of the uh, pandemic on the one hand, but people becoming galvanized by what they're seeing um, in the media and the atrocities that they're 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 reacting to as a result, seeing young people across racial and ethnic and even global lines beginning to rise up now and say, 
this is not what we want. This is not who we are. And and getting a new vision of themselves despite some of what my generation has done that has been so um, uh, demoralizing, I think, mm-hmm. that we have not done our job as elders as well as we should have, and we need rehabilitation <laughs> to well, we're all going into detox. To create a better <laughs> legacy. Yeah. We, so, but yeah. I, but, but this is this is the current, and, and also there are younger people who are not really wishing to leave us behind, which is a real plus, I think, too. There, there's, there's a lot of intergenerational work that is going on. And within the race and change work that I've been doing, that's how it's blossomed beyond just elders telling their stories, but younger people who were invited into the conversation and who wanted to share their stories. They listened to the stories of some of the elders. They started sharing their own stories, and that's how I ended up doing the um, uh, the radio program, giving right. uh, young people an opportunity to be showcased to continue this sharing about race and ethnicity and differences and how they're dealing with it. Um, this uh, next clip you're going to hear is from a 14-year-old mm. uh, immigrant teenager, Vanessa Hernandez, who had a few little interesting uh, points she wanted to make as a Mexican and American. I'm Vanessa Hernandez. I'm 14. I was born here in Florida, but my parents are both Mexican. At home, it's normal. I love my family. We act like a big Mexican family. But at school, it's a different story. I have classmates since, like, the sixth grade, like, them being my friends and all, but still, like, making racial comments about Mexicans. And, like, I know they're playing around, but it still touches you because that's where you're from originally. And I just... Like, at one point in my life, I started, like, believing it was, like, bad to be Mexican. Like, they used to say, oh, like, Mexicans, all they do is drink. They they cut grass. They get nowhere in life. And I just want to be, like, the first Mexican fashion designer, like, the famous, famous fashion designer and prove everyone wrong. Mexicans can do it. It's just, it's not our fault that we don't get equal rights in America. And I'm trying to prove a point to everyone. Wow, she's 14. That's amazing. I mean, if, I am definitely rooting for Vanessa. And if she designs as well as she communicates, she's going to be one very successful designer. I mean, she's extraordinary and at 14 years old. And she's just the one I met through an organization. But it's heartbreaking to hear that, too. I don't know. How can we continue to improve Dr. Oliver, what can, besides going through the car wash and you're doing your work, what's the next level of where we can take this? Well, I began my writing career as a, as a journalist, and I think, I, you know, I was thinking about that in terms of, you know, I think that interrogation of ourselves to just begin with who's in your circle. Mm-hmm. People, if you can even start with that. Who are the people you're interacting with? How diverse are those people? And what you know? And then what do you need to do to to change that? And what are you 
And what are you doing? Are you involved in some organization? Are you involved in some project? Are you involved in something that is trying to make a difference? And when are you speaking out? And when are you listening? When are you challenging what you're hearing and seeing? And when are you listening to others, even if those are voices you haven't heard before? And even when it might be difficult to hear some of what those voices are saying. And where are you spending your money? What are you supporting or not supporting? And where are you spending your time? What are you listening to and watching on your in your media and devices? You know, what kind of information are you getting that's feeding you? Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, how are you remaining sane so that you can do the work? Because I think that is such a key because we can have our hearts can be touched, our minds can be open, we can have great intention, but we also need to know how to ration our energies for the long run so that we don't get burned out and so that we survive. And this is something people of color have to share with white people and that yes because if we were if if i would get really into all of the outrages Mm -hmm. i would not be able to survive and keep doing the work because the outrages that you're seeing now have been going on infinitely Mm -hmm. in my history and my parents history and my ancestral history and even in my personal history it's just now becoming coming more to the forefront where more people are seeing it and becoming aware of it. So the weight of those experiences we carry on a daily basis, and that's where it comes down to making those individual choices at every stage. How am I going to react to that weight, and how am mm-hmm. I gonna, what kind of way do I want to continue living as a result of it? We see what happens. People do go crazy. You see rioting, you see burning, you see hatred, and um, it takes an equal amount of work to not act out and to stay focused and continue doing the work. So I applaud all of you who are continuing to do the work as difficult as it is. Your work and how you do it is you're really making a difference one person at a time but vibrating out. You mentioned earlier how the young people came to one interview and they were very interested in the process and what you were doing. So now they have this very popular pod show about um, race and change. That's moving it forward. And I think in addition to the personal responsibility or accountability that each of us should take, we have to also move that something forward. I give a shout out to all of my friends who are honest and open and loving with me. And they'll point out when they'll see my white benefit showing. Here I think, oh, look, I, I kind of you know, gained this wisdom when I was a young girl, eight years old, and here I am in my 30s and I'm writing a screenplay. And it's basically about the first African-American vice president of the United States to be elected. So my co-writer, who is a, uh, a Spaniard from Spain, but 
now he's an American citizen, was living in New York. And my good friend Jennifer Bryan, who is Jamaican, and she's a top costume designer in Hollywood, she was giving me feedback on my story. And she said, why vice president and not president? And I said, well, I don't know if, if the audience will buy president yet. So Jen, I see Jen and I see Angel kind of look at me with this look, and then I see them look at each other. And then I got it. Like, I realized, here I am writing a screenplay about race, and I was in that white mindset of limiting <laughs> a black character. I thought, oh, my God. I, was, I thought I was so conscious. But, you know, as I was saying before, there are layers and layers of this programming that needs to be peeled away so we can start getting some more positive, loving, united energy happening here. Well, that sounds good. There are certainly are anti-racism programs and whatever that have been going on for a while, new ones that have come up and all, but this is such a big thing that we need many, many, many approaches. So we can work on that. <laughs> we can work on it. Okay. Always a pleasure to have you here. You are an emissary of hope. And I thank you for the work that you do and for the magnificent way in which you do it. It's using the resources you have. (laughs) That's very humble of you. So anyway, thank you again for being here. To my listeners, I appreciate you spending your precious time with me today. I hope you'll continue to tune in and see who's revealing their extraordinary story from behind the curtain. Dr. Oliver is going to send us out with another one of her beautiful songs. We are all related. Peace and gratitude, people. Wear a mask, social distance. Take the vaccine when you can get it. Bye-bye now. I don't know why it takes us so long to say I need you. As if we didn't know The feelings were there all the time Well, the very same words we don't want to say Are the ones we are longing to hear every day We're meant for each other Always We are all related Already integrated with love We are all related Family orchestrated from above Well, there's really only one of us A story told in different parts Related at the heart I don't know why It takes us so long to say I forgive you When we know we're always making mistakes of our own But the very same words we don't want to say Are the ones we're longing to hear every day We can make it together if we say 
We are all related.